Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. It's planting season. That means that now is the perfect time to add some color to your yard. And for that, you can't do better than roses from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. They're the ones in the white containers. Each one has been trialed and tested by a team of expert horticulturists. Look for Proven Winners Roses in the white containers at your local garden center because you and your home deserve the best. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 10th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll be recapping the Major League Baseball draft by the Chicago White Sox with our good friend, Jim Callis of MLBPipeline.com. What are the expectations long-term for first-round pick Andrew Vaughn? Where does Vaughn rank within the White Sox top 30 prospects? And speaking of top 30, who are even the White Sox top 10 prospects now with all that's been happening down in Birmingham to start 2019? We'll chat about those topics, plus get you caught up to speed with Nick Magical's debut week with Birmingham in the Minor League Report and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But we start this week's show recapping the White Sox and Royals series as the White Sox won the series two games out of three thanks to terrific outings from Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez. Joining me to discuss is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Winning road series is a hard thing to do in the major leagues, so good showing by the White Sox. But I feel like this could have been a sweep if Renteria doesn't go to Jace Fry on Friday. Possibly. Uh, that was really a bizarre call going to, when you have Billy Hamilton at the plate, all you have to do is throw him strikes. He picked the player least qualified to throw him strikes, or at least the, the the reliever who's shown himself to be the one who has the hardest time finding the zone even when he's just trying to get it over. And it worked out exactly like you thought it might. So, yeah, that was the one call where 
Uh, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense, and I'm curious to see if there are any ramifications from this, given that it's been like a season-long struggle, and the White Sox are in pitching staff reshaping mode. You know, I wonder if there's the possibility of a, a demotion at some point. Aaron Bummer also walked Billy Hamilton. Maybe it's tough to get Billy Hamilton out now these days, Jim. <laughs> yeah, or it's or it's maybe like the ghosts of uh, Royal Speedsters past, with uh, like you know when they had a hell of a time uh, getting Jared Dyson out. So maybe anytime there's a lefty uh, a speed threat at the plate, they just uh, automatically uh, start uh, you know the fighting demons. When Bummer walked Hamilton, I was kind of yelling at my TV, just throw a fastball down the middle. I mean, he's not gonna hurt you. What is he gonna do? Beat it into the ground? Yeah, I mean, he did, like, buggy whip one in the corner. So, I mean, this, you know, we have seen him do it occasionally. So, I guess, you know, maybe the White Sox have uh, been kept honest enough. But, no, I mean, he's basically the same guy. He always is slugging under 300, um, you know, hitting in the 230s, you know, striking out a fair amount. So, yeah, it just you basically have to guard against the bunt more than anything. By the way, before we continue, one note. Happy belated birthday to our good friend Rob Hart, whose birthday was on Sunday and based on his Twitter Timeline, he got to enjoy the White Sox win with some delicious-looking pork chops, so I hope it was a good one, Rob, uh, who does the voice intro for this show. And, of course, P.O. Sox, you get to hear Rob on every episode. Thanks, Rob. Happy birthday. And uh, Lucas Giolito. Again, this is kind of mandatory now on this show that we have to spend five minutes talking about how awesome he is. According to Fangraph's War, Giolito is now the American League's best starting pitcher. He leads the league in war on fan graphs. However, if you use baseball prospectuses warp or baseball reference war, it's Houston Astros Justin Verlander, which is not a surprise with Verlander. I mean, he's yeah, going to the Hall of Fame. Exactly. But last week, we were discussing Giolito going to the All-Star game, and we both think that he will be there. If he pitches this well, like he has been his last seven starts with a sub one ERA against the Yankees and the Rangers and the Red Sox to close out the month. Are we looking at the first White Sox starting pitcher to start an all-star game since Chris Sale, Jim? Possibly. Uh, you know, I, I think if it comes to a case where he's you're running neck and neck with Verlander and Verlander's doing you know, his things leading the league and wins and, and being a total horse with innings and everything, as long as, you know, if they're both able to start the game, both able to pitch, you know, they're not, uh, their schedules allow them to pitch in the All-Star game. I could see him getting the nod just because of star power recognition, uh, you know, postseason success, everything like that. But I think, you know, should Verlander be out of it somehow or, you know, hit a couple of rough starts or not be able to start, uh, it's, it's possible because I think Giolito has enough name recognition just as being like the top pitching prospect when he's coming up and being a, a headliner of a trade uh, for White Sox when they decided to rebuild. I think he's got enough cred in terms of buzz. So I think it would be possible that he could start. But I think you know, Verlander is a tough guy to overcome just because, you know, it's it's the all-star game and Verlander is a star. And he's, uh, as you said, he's more than a star, uh, you know, I guess when his career is uh, settled. But uh, I, I think if you come up short to, to Verlander, especially at the stage of Giolito's career, uh, you don't really complain about that. Yeah, Verlander hasn't started an all-star game since 2012. Hmm. So it's been a minute. I mean, it's a bit misleading to say the last White Sox starter 
sends Chris Sale to start an all-star game because Chris Sale has started the last three all-star games yeah. <laughs> for the American League. Uh, the last, Just the last two have been with the Boston Red Sox, and, of course, he represented the White Sox in 2016. Prior to Sale, I believe it was Mark Burley in 2005 that started for the American League all-star team. Uh, but something to monitor in the upcoming weeks and root for because if Giolito continues to do this and he – pitches as well as he does did against the Boston Red Sox as he did uh, against the Houston Astros where he shut them out. Uh, maybe that makes an impression on manager Alex Cora, who will be managing the American League All-Star team this year. So we'll see. Just floating that idea to all the White Sox fans out there uh, that some of you want to discredit the idea right away, but I say let it marinate. And let's see what happens in these next three starts. And if Giolito continues to dominate, maybe, just maybe, he goes from the worst pitcher in the American League to starting the All-Star game the following year. What a turnaround. Well, that could be that could be like another, you know, angle to the the uh, you know, to the All-Star candidacy and, and the possibility of him starting is just, you know, people love a good worst to first story, uh, a good redemption angle. And Giolito has that. Like I think Joe Buck and and whoever's calling the game with them would love to talk about Giolito's comeback for an inning, and he provides that. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be Joe Buck and John Smoltz calling the uh, the All Star game. But so that's Giolito. Ronaldo Lopez on Sunday had a nice bounce back start. Jim, 96 pitches through six innings, he had eight strikeouts to just one walk, and he did allow one run, which was a monster home run by Jorge Soler as he sat back and waited for the changeup and crushed it. I do like that Renteria didn't try to push seven innings out of Lopez. And uh, his fastball didn't get many swings and misses, but the breaking stuff did. Anything else that caught your eye from Lopez that he did better in this start in Kansas City than in his previous one in Washington, D.C.? Well, it was the curveball, really, uh, that kind of came out of nowhere. I think uh, it was probably the closest to the form that he had when he was in Washington and a well-regarded prospect in his own right. He was a fastball curve pitcher, and the slider and changeup were more or less uh, afterthoughts or at least works in progress. And then coming to the White Sox, Don Cooper likes to teach a slider or a cutter, and it's a little bit easier to command for strikes, and so he switched to that mainly. But entering the game, I'm looking at Brooks baseball, and he hadn't thrown more than eight curveballs in a start all season. Against the Royals, he threw 16, and he got seven swinging strikes on it, which is more than any other pitch he had. Uh, he threw 27 sliders, only got six swinging strikes. Or not, I shouldn't say only, but six is a decent return on 27 pitches. But six swinging strikes on the slider and only two swinging strikes on the fastball. But really, he was able to get off the fastball. Uh, he was able to show hitters something else. He didn't really throw the changeup all that much. I don't think it was that working that well for him. Jorge Soler hit it a ton. But, uh, you know, he threw 96 pitches, but only 46 fastballs. And, you know, running in, uh, entering the game, he was running about a 60% fastball rate. So they get it below 50 and, and have enough faith in the secondary pitches, especially the curveball, which opponents really hadn't seen all year from him. Uh, that's a different look. And I think it was, you know, a, a way for him to surprise an opponent. And it was a way for him to uh, just change the scouting report a little bit. And I think, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about James McCann uh, behind the plate, you know, working with Giolito and calling some unusual sequences or, or, or catching opponents off guard. And I think with Wellington Castillo, I think you have to do the same thing and say that he was able to uh, uh, guide Lopez uh, away from his fastball. Uh, you know, keep going, you know, didn't stick with Lopez's usual recipe, found something that worked that was different and 
rode the novelty, I think, to his uh, to a nice comeback start. So I think uh, that'll be kind of key going forward is to see if this is a a new recipe or just something where he had a good day, had the feel for the curveball, and it might disappear on him again. But uh, it, it makes him more interesting, I think, going forward. You know, if he has two different breaking balls he can switch to rather than you hope he gets a slider over and otherwise you're just you're preying on his fastball. Especially if he can gain confidence in those breaking pitches with the velocity that it has that he has with his fastball. I bet if he threw the those breaking pitches harder when he does gain that type of confidence that he can throw those pitches at any uh, point in the count, uh, maybe those pitches pick up on the nastiness level for Ronaldo Lopez, and maybe he can get into a good rhythm here. That that was that's a good observation, Jim. Anything in particular? Like, is he throwing the curveball more against lefties, or is this just something we're gonna have to get more data on and and see if he continues this trend in his future starts? Well, I think given how scarce it was in previous starts, we don't really know. I mean, uh, the Royals have a pretty balanced lineup, and I think it is a pitch typically used towards lefties. But, you know, looking across the league, guys with curveballs, I think it's a nice pitch to pair with a guy who likes riding a fastball up in the zone, which Lopez does. Uh, he gets a lot of fly balls, and if you're going to get a lot of fly balls, and he gets fly balls basically with every pitch, like he doesn't really have a two-seamer, uh, he Throws the four seamer sliders, kind of elevates, and he gets he gets pop ups and, and fly balls and those, and the changeup isn't really a ground ball pitch. So I think if you're looking for something to get hitters on their front foot, uh, being able to pair a curveball with a fastball like that might be his best recipe to uh, <laughs> softening the contact because you know you know entering the game uh, his uh, the hard contact numbers are through the roof and the expected on base uh, weighted on base averages and everything were just. Uh, we're just way too high to uh, be somebody who could, you know, I guess, hang in a big league rotation. So something had to change. And at least for one day, he was able to change up the mix and get something that worked. And, and I think, uh, you know, with Lopez and I think with all pitchers, consistency is a uh, an issue. But I think, you know, just being able to throw the curveball for strikes and, and throw them uh, backdoor to lefties and, uh, you know, steal some strikes early in the count with enough snap that they're not get-me-overs. Uh, yeah, there's a recipe here. Just more a matter of he can replicate it, which he's had trouble doing in the past. All right, so a couple of things. We're rooting for Lucas Giolito to become the American League All-Star starting pitcher. And let's see if Ronaldo Lopez continues to throw more of these breaking pitches. Because I agree with you, Jim. I, I think this is this is a worthwhile endeavor for Ronaldo Lopez to follow well and take Castillo's lead and throw the slider and curveball more. It doesn't appear that he has the same feel for the changeup like Lucas Giolito does. So do you think he could live off a fastball, slider, curveball mixture? I think so for six innings. Um, Yeah, I think it's more a matter of if the the curveball is here to stay – I think you know when it comes to pitchers, they can use that curveball like a changeup, just something to, uh, yeah, especially with the high fastball because you're basically looking at eye levels and release points, and if a hitter sees something high in the zone and doesn't pick up the spin immediately, their timing is off, and I think the changeup has a similar effect with the fastball, coming out of the same pitch slot, same arm speed, and all of a sudden it's you know seven miles per hour or slower than they expected to be, and they're out in their front foot, so. If he can use the curveball like uh, a changeup, then he might not need that pitch all that much. All right, so that's Giolito, and that's Lopez. The White Sox got some more bad news as far as the injury front with a starting pitcher. This time it's Dylan Covey. He's going to the 10-day injured list with right shoulder inflammation, uh, which is something you always hold your breath on when it comes to pitchers. Sometimes it's just minor, and they need rest, and they're back 
in 10 days and sometimes it grows to a more serious issue and then you don't see them for the rest of the season. Uh, so we'll wait and see what happens with Dylan Covey. He's been pitching better as of late for the White Sox. Tiago Vieira was called up from Charlotte to replace Covey on the roster, but the White Sox do need to address the starting rotation. And it does appear to be Audrey Simer Despagne and not Dylan Cease that's going to be replacing Covey in the starting rotation. Manager Rick Renteria told reporters Sunday morning before the White Sox-Royals games that it wouldn't be Cease as he still has things to work on in AAA. Sure enough, on Sunday, during a game that was a doubleheader and there was rain, it was not ideal condition, Cease didn't get out of the first inning. As he threw 40 pitches, he walked three, and his defense didn't help him out at all. But Jim, I like to hear from the White Sox on what exactly Cease needs needs to work on uh, down in AAA to merit a call-up because, one, they have a need, and Cease is the next best available starter. And if they're not going to go to him for some unknown reason, I think fans deserve to know, okay, but when? When are you going to call him up, or what do you need to see from him to Mayor calling him up other than just some timeline and say, well, he's on the Michael Kopech timeline. Okay, well, then we don't have to talk about Dylan Cease until August then. Do you agree with the White Sox decision to not call up Cease and have uh, Despagne make the start instead of Covey against Washington this week? Well, you know, I guess the one thing I could see the White Sox wanting to do and, and not being a total Michael Kopech playbook thing is maybe the Reynaldo Lopez playbook. Uh, worrying about strength of schedule. It is a really tough schedule, a lot of good offenses, and so you know maybe the Royals aren't uh, one of them, but the Nationals are, so the way they, they, they called him up and starting him for uh, you know, Monday instead of Sunday, you have the Nationals, you have the Cubs, you have the Yankees, you have the Rangers who are playing well, you have the Twins. You know, it's not an ideal slate. Uh, I was again. I guess I was uh, not as concerned just because of the number of off days. You could rearrange the rotation to avoid, say, like pitching Cease at Wrigley Field, which I think you know maybe is a bit of a tall order for uh, a guy making his first uh, appearances in the majors. But uh, you know we've seen that before with Lopez. They really like trying to set up an easy introduction or the easiest possible introduction for, uh, I guess, a key starter making his introduction. And I think, you know, Cease really uh, helped him out with that start. It was uh, it was an ugly 40 pitches, but as you mentioned, yeah, the, the defense had a chance to get, uh, like, five outs, and they didn't get uh, – they only got two of them. Uh, Palka made this really weird he, – he caught this line drive that was behind the runner at, at first base, and it should have been a three unassisted, but it's like he couldn't decide whether to run at the runner or run to, third, uh, run to first base. And so he ended up doing this awkward, like – Right foot was going towards the runner. Left foot was going to uh, first base, and he kind of was not making pro- like kind of like running like his pants around his ankles, <laughs> just making this weird effort to and not making progress in either direction. And he was late to get apply the tag, and and that should have ended the inning. And then I think he threw something like 20 pitches after that. So, you know, it wasn't great. And I think you know when you when you see Cease uh, struggle with a start like that, have incredible defenders all around the diamond. Uh, which I think the White Sox have around the infield. Uh, I think, you know, that's something that uh, maybe would make starting in Chicago easier than Charlotte. So, you know, that's another thing, reason I think that uh, 
the the jump to the majors might not be as big of a deal. But you know, the one thing I was looking at with Despagne is that last year he started adding a slider for the first time, uh, which he hadn't done. And he's he's had some success here and there, but he's been more or less a replacement level pitcher. But whenever I see a guy like adding a slider, I kind of think of Anthony Swarzak, just uh, mm-hmm. somebody who was figuring on a pitch but didn't quite succeed with it. Uh, and then comes the White Sox. And so maybe, you know, that's one thing that makes him a bit more curious to me than a regular replacement level pitcher like a Ross Detweiler or uh, Matt Tomshaw or whoever they might call up instead. Like Despagne at least has that going for him. I don't have high hopes, but he was pitching well in a pretty inflated in, uh, environment in Charlotte. And he does have the slider, which is new and intriguing. So I guess I... I I, I think I would have been more disappointed if it were Detweiler, but a Despagne at least is, I think, mildly interesting. And given that Covey could be out for a while and given Banuelos has had uh, uh, a visit to the injured list already, uh, I think it's worth exploring whether Despagne has some innings to give because they might need him one way or another, even with Cease. Yeah, Despagne in three games started with the Charlotte Knights since the White Sox acquired him from the Louisville Bats. Uh, 18 innings, 16 strikeouts, only four walks. He did allow two home runs, uh, which those two home runs contributed to the only four earned runs that he's allowed over 18 innings and only 10 hits. So Despagne has been pitching very well in AAA. Do not look up his results for his major league career. They are not pretty. Uh, But hopefully with his start, for the White Sox this week against the Washington Nationals. It will be a pretty one and will help the White Sox win. But going back to Dylan Cease and avoiding tough competition, Peter Lambert for the Colorado Rockies has not been having that great of a year at AAA. And of course, with the environment in Albuquerque, I cannot even imagine what the offense has been like pitching in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in that elevation with the bouncy ball, it's got to be insane. But we just watched Peter Lambert make his first start in the majors at Wrigley Field and over seven innings allowed only one run while having eight or nine strikeouts to just one walk. So I understand on why the White Sox may want to avoid tough competition, but I feel that's babying your prospects too much. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think... You know, especially Lopez. I remember uh, I saw um, I saw Rickon at Saber Seminar that year, and and we I guess we broke the story that Lopez was coming up because he was talking about it there, and uh, I happened to be in the room, and it was uh, it was a I talked to him afterwards. And I asked him about Lopez, and and he mentioned the uh, you know he mentioned the the strength of schedule. And I said, well, Lopez, you know, he's had some major league outings already. This isn't new to him. And he, he pitched in the postseason even. So it wasn't like, you know, he was making his major league debut. And there, you know, I could see if you were trying to call up somebody fresh, like, you know, eventually Kopech, that, yeah, it's, you're going to have butterflies. But Lopez, this wasn't new to him. And he just kind of uh, accepted that point, but didn't really, you know, I guess change his mind at all. So it seems like, yeah, the, the White Sox really like leaning into this rebuild and, and the idea that uh, they have this time to... Uh, 
you know, I guess they like using this extent. Maybe after years of having these seasons where they need all hands on deck and are calling, calling up Carlos Rodon in April and calling up Carson Fulmer to use him out of the bullpen when he hasn't pitched there, maybe they really like exploring the studio space and, and, and enjoying the luxury of time. But I do think they go overboard at times. And this one, I think, is given all the off days. I could see if you had like a five-day grind, uh, Yankees, Cubs, Twins, you know, bam, 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 that maybe it's you know, unrelenting. But... Given that you can shape the rotation and take an extra day off and you know, have some extra work on side sessions, I didn't think it was that bad a call. And uh, fortunately, you know, as, as we mentioned, Cease is uh, throwing 40 pitches and only getting two outs. I think buys Han a little bit of time, but hopefully I'll bounce back and put the pressure on once again. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to keep going back to this. It's either Cease doing that or Despagne. And the talent levels are... Quite different, in my opinion. Cease has got much better stuff. Yeah. And you're going to go with Despagne. Okay, so now Despagne is facing the Nationals, the Yankees, and the Rangers in Texas? Yeah. I just feel like there's this disconnect. You got 25 guys right now on this roster that are 31 and 33. And you can see that the effort is there. They're trying to win every single game. But they are paired with the manager who's more worried about player development than actually managing to win games. And then they're paired with the front office that's wrapping top prospects in bubble wrap and instead using washed up uh, quadruple A type of players to to come in, step up in this tough schedule, and it doesn't give the guys who are on this twenty five man roster right now a good opportunity to win these games. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, it, it's um, when it comes to Cease and, and as you mentioned the bubble wrap, I I think they're. This is one thing I kind of wonder about, and I've, I wrote about it last year, I think, with The Athletic, um, that when you have a front office that isn't trying and you have a manager who's benching players and, and trying to get the maximum effort to win, there is like a real disconnect to where there is, um, you know, the White Sox are on one level, the prospects are another, and, and they don't really match up. <laughs> like, whatever the prospects do, uh, there, there's no bearing, and it just feels like it's in a vacuum, it's isolated from all real-world consequences, and there's no sense of, like, real competition. I think uh, uh, Penals in a Twitter, I'm not sure if it was a Twitter thread or just one big post where he said that, uh, you know, he outlined the reasons to call up Cease. This is before Cease has started, I believe. I remember the time timing of it, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's weird, and uh, it's a little bit anti-competitive. I, I think, you know, when you, when you call up Despagne, they just don't care about Despagne's feelings. Like, if you worry about Cease's feelings and emotions and handling setbacks and struggles, whereas, you know, guys like Despagne and Banuelos are more along the lines of fodder. You hope to get something from them, but if not, oh well. Uh, and I think the White Sox maybe are a bit terrified of being like, you know, the Gordon Beckham, the Carlos Rodon thing. You rush prospects. Why are you rushing rebuild? Why are you letting uh, 25-man roster emergencies dictate when you call up prospects before they're perfectly ready? And I think there is something like that to it. But, yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, with, with them being 31 and 33 and not out of it, rewarding uh, players, I think, is fine. And I will say Renteria, you know, he's backed off the benchings. He hasn't done that this year. He's He's trusted his players more that they're not running for – um, you know, real reasons or, or I guess respectable reasons. Maybe he's talking to him afterwards and, and letting them know, but he's not embarrassing them. He's not, 
you know keeping up the standard. So I think he's backed off backed off there, and and that's less of a teaching mode. I think there are other modes where he still needs to get out of it. But I, I think we're seeing a bit of an evolution with him. But the front office I think is still behind, and I think that takes a toll on a manager and a manager's I guess credibility. Uh, and that's why I think when managers uh, you know go through a rebuild, um, yeah, that they, they usually jettison a manager two or three years in just because of all the losing takes a toll. Uh, it's hard for them to keep the clubhouse. I think to Renteria's credits, uh, you haven't heard any of those, uh, you know, murmurs of dissatisfaction and so forth, but but it's a lot of losing. And I think when you're losing that much and uh, you're not provided the best players from your front office, I think it's really hard for a manager to overcome that. And I think the White Sox, you know, they are showing a lot of faith in Renteria by secretly extending him. So he's not going anywhere, but uh, it, I think it it's, does a little bit of a disservice to the guys actually trying to get wins when you are not bringing up the best players. And I think, you know, a guy like Cease, and, and this is another thing with the White Sox, I think they are really reluctant to send up a guy and then send him back down. They really want to bring up a guy and have him stay for the rest of his career, basically. And I don't know if there's anything to that. Like, I understand the reasoning that you don't want to have people worrying, like, oh, will he ever, is he ever good enough to to, uh, to make the grade? But, you know, you have a guy as young as Cease is, and, and I think fans can tell, like, oh, this is a shot to see if he's ready. If not, no big deal. Like, I, I think a guy like him, uh, you know, there is reason to think that he might need a couple of chances to stick and I, I don't see why that's the end of the world so that's I think another thing where the White Sox are maybe a bit different than other clubs and for reasons that might not be all that valid Gordon Beckham broke this front office it's possible <laughs> and, I, and and you know cause when with the Eloy thing last year uh and and you know he was he showed no he was he wasn't learning anything from double A pitching wasn't learning anything from triple A pitching I think you know some fans were even you know towing yeah you know, I wouldn't say towing the party line you know, maybe they're genuinely thinking it just saying like you know call him up last you know, next year he needs a full year in the minors no need to rush him until he's absolutely ready and I could just see like fans not wanting their hearts broken but I think the front office has to be a bit more decisive and not let um, you know have faith in their player development and have faith that they can right the ship if it goes wrong. I mean, the part of the problem with Beckham is they didn't send him back down. They never did. He was in the majors the whole time. And, uh, and I don't think that did him any good. So I think, uh, yeah, that's something to learn. If they're going to learn anything from Beckham, you know, maybe calling up a guy and not being afraid to send him back down. If it's not working is maybe one lesson they should be taking rather than wait forever and, uh, let winds pass you by. Well, we will continue to wait to see when Dylan Cease is called up, but Despagne will be making one of these starts against the Washington Nationals this week. And speaking of that series, let's go ahead and preview the two-game series between the White Sox and the Washington Nationals at Guaranteed Rate Field for Monday and Tuesday. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. 
Why is SeatGeek better than the rest? They have over 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store. And SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web. And they rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10. And finally, SeatGeek displays them on an interactive seat map so you can look at different possibilities and get a understanding of what each view of the seats look like at the stadium or the concert venue. Plus, SeatGeek breaks down the details. Green dots mean good deals. Red dots, those tickets are overpriced. Don't buy them. And every purchase is fully guaranteed with more and more professional sports moving to digital uh, tickets. SeatGeek allows you to download those tickets straight to your smartphone for easy access into the stadium. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy White Sox tickets. There are some great deals on SeatGeek this week. You can get tickets as cheap as $12 for the White Sox Nationals game. Even this weekend series, Father's Day weekend, and there's this great giveaway that's going on on Saturday for the White Sox with the Hawaiian shirt that I know a lot of White Sox fans want to get. For White Sox-Yankees in this four-game series coming up, you can get tickets as cheap as $14 for each of those days. So, if you want to enjoy the warm weather that finally came to Chicago and you want to go catch the White Sox at home, use SeatGeek because the best part is Sox Machine listeners get to save $10 off their first purchase on SeatGeek. All you have to do is download download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone and use our promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. Now it is the White Sox and the Washington Nationals. The Nationals won the two games in D.C., even though the White Sox in the first game had a 5 to nothing lead, and they probably should have won that game. And in Game 2, the White Sox came all the way back to tie it, and then they got walked off in the ninth innings. The Nationals are 2-0 against the White Sox this year. The Nationals are starting to warm up. Their record is 30-35, and which is worse than the White Sox. But in the last 10 games, they are 7-3. and So the Nationals are starting to get into a rhythm here. They are fourth place in the National League East, seven games back of first place to Philadelphia Phillies. And their probable pitchers for this series on Monday, it's either going to be Despagne or Manny Manuelos for either Monday or Tuesday. It hasn't been set yet. It sounds like Despagne for Monday and Manuelos for Tuesday. Wait and see. But for the Nationals, it'll be Anibal Sanchez on Monday. And on Tuesday, it'll be Patrick Corbin. Wednesday is the day off, which means Ivan Nova, Lucas Giolito, and Ronaldo Lopez will be ready for this weekend series against the New York Yankees. But with this series against the Washington Nationals, Jim, I've got a bad feeling about these two games because it's the pitchers that are on the mound for the White Sox. The Nationals are heating up. Uh, They did something cool on Sunday. They hit back-to-back-to-back-to-back home runs, four straight home runs against the San Diego Padres. And they have a much better roster. They got more talent than the White Sox. I guess my question is, do you have confidence that the White Sox can win one of these two games and at least win one game against the Nationals in 2019? I think they could. I mean, it's an uphill battle, as you mentioned, with with, uh, Despagne and Banuelos pitching. Uh, But, you know, Sanchez isn't having a great season. He looked okay against the White Sox last time out, but seeing him two times in two weeks might help them. Corbin's had a couple rough starts. Uh, I guess the one thing I'm curious about, we didn't talk about this during the Royal Series, but Yonder Alonso getting some time off on the bench. Uh, he didn't play in Washington due to the DH. He only played one of three games against the Royal Series, and Renteria's trying to give him a bit of a mental break, but you know, with Sanchez uh, pitching, on, he's, he's a righty, so Alonso might play them, but Corbin's a lefty, so you might see him ride the bench again. You know, I do wonder if they're trying to shape uh, the lineup and preparing to move on. I think it may be wishful thinking at this point, but uh, 
it, it, it's an idea, and uh, uh, given how poor of a season he's had, and given that this is the first uh, serious time he's missed, you know, this is usually how it starts, at least, you know, losing at bats, losing playing time, uh, you know, not not taking advantage of the matchups that should be working for you, and then you run out of ideas. So that's, I guess, one thing I'm looking forward to is seeing, you know, whether Alonzo responds, seeing if he, they play him, or see if, you know, when John Jay is ready, does John Jay take Alonzo's place? Hmm. Wow. That would be quite the turn of events uh, for the White Sox. Uh, do you think Eloy Jimenez, he's hit home runs in his last two games, helping the White Sox, a monster home run on Sunday, the the farthest hit home run by the White Sox this year, 471 feet at Kauffman Stadium. Uh, do you think he finally hits a home run at home in these two games against the Nationals? Uh, I'm going to say no, but I think the uh, the homestand, I think, will will answer that. So you think maybe better chance against the Yankees than the Nationals? Yes. Okay. He did hit that, had the, his first home run at Yankee Stadium in his first multi-home run game against the Yankees back in April. So maybe he still has that type of magic. But it's good to see him and his start getting into rhythm and start flexing the power. Yohan Makata's got a 10-game hitting streak going. We didn't. We don't talk much about the offense. Uh, we talked a lot about the pitching here on this show. But the White Sox offense... Uh, they have their moments and there's just some games and it happens throughout the 162 game season that they're just off. But offensively for the White Sox and Mikata and Jimenez can continue to hit that will go a long way, uh, not only for the White Sox efforts on the field, but for our entertainment as well, uh, as far as fans watching the games. And hopefully the White Sox offense does pick up the slack. So I think they're going to need to score quite a few runs to help with the pitching staff in these two games against the Nationals. Jim and I will recap that White Sox National Series on Tuesday night with Sox Machine Live, but Jim and I will be reconvening in the show during P.O. Sox to answer your questions, but it's time to bring on another Jim, our good friend Jim Callis from MLB.com to discuss the Chicago White Sox Major League Baseball draft picks next on the Sox Machine Podcast. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google, and every site is automatically optimized for any device, whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. The Chicago White Sox Major League Baseball draft is over, as we'll be hearing shortly what the bonus amounts were. 
But other than the selection of Andrew Vaughn in the first round, the biggest takeaway was the White Sox strategy in the draft, taking three straight high schoolers in the second, third, and fourth round. And to help pay for them, college seniors from the fifth to tenth rounds. And the White Sox were not the only team to use this strategy. The Mets also pulled off a similar trend. So did the Miami Marlins. Is this going to be the new norm for baseball? Well, join us to discuss from MLB.com. It's one of our best friends of the show. It's Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Josh. Hope you're, hope you're doing well. I am doing well. So we're done with the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. And we'll be picking it up next week to start looking at prospects for the 2020. <laughs> I'm already working on that. I'm already working on a, a top 10 mock draft for next year because I've been tasked with doing that. So I'm not even waiting till next week, although it won't be out until next week. I'm with you. I'm already capturing video from the Super Regionals of like Reed Detmers and Austin Martin. So, Where do the White Sox play? Like if the season ended today as we record this, mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm trying to admit, well, the White Sox wouldn't have that great a pick right now, would they? No, they're too close to 500. Yeah. Well, you know what? Actually, there's there's a bunch of teams bunched around 500. I believe they have the number eight pick in the draft. Okay. I think that's going to be right where they land. I think they'll have a top 10 pick. So, so, we're, so who do you want? Who do you want at oh, number eight? Oh, man. That's a great question. Who, who's your target at eight, Josh? My my. Rough draft, very rough draft as I wait feedback. I've got Patrick Bailey, the catcher from North Carolina State, okay. number eight. You know, he, he looked good. I thought he's better offensively than Shea Langeliers, like as far as comparing the two. But White Sox need help in the starting pitching front. Oh, it's a good year. It's a great year for college starting pitchers. You could get one of those. Like, I, I have... Two off the board at that point, and, and Emerson Hancock of my beloved Georgia Bulldogs and Asa Lacey from Texas A&M, but you got Tanner Burns from Auburn and JT Ginn from Mississippi State and Cole Wilcox, yes. another Bulldog, and, and other guys. Like So it's this is the opposite of the, of, the, of the 2019 draft. There will be a ton of college pitching in the top 15 picks. Next year, Sox Machine fans, you're going to get a lot of reports from me watching a lot of SEC baseball next year. The SEC is loaded on the college starting front, uh, especially first-round picks. But Cole Wilcox would be great for the White Sox, eighth overall. Uh, But for the 2019 draft, I thought you did a great job covering this on MLB uh, Network and .com, especially Tuesday and Wednesday. I don't know how you and Jonathan Mayo pull off the third to 40th rounds. Um, But when it comes to what the White Sox did in this class, how do you think they fared, Jim? Um, I mean, it's way too early to know. I mean, I thought they did fine. Uh, what What I liked is when it came down to it, like you've heard me say this a million times, I think when you're picking at the top of the draft, you can look for deals, you can look for specific positions, but when it comes down to it, you have to take the best guy. You you, you can sit there and wish you had up the middle guys. You can sit there and hope to cut an underslot deal to let you you know do some you know big financial moves later. You got to take the best guy, and I thought they took the best guy in Andrew Vaughn. Um, I think most teams would tell you that there were, you know, the top three players in the draft were one, Adley Rutschman, two, Bobby Wood Jr., and three, Andrew Vaughn. Not every team, but I think if you had all 30 teams vote, 
I'd be very surprised if that's not how the top of the draft would have been voted. And they got the, you know, they had the number three pick. Rutschman and Witt didn't get to them, and so they took Andrew Vaughn. And yeah, well, we'll come back to me. How did you feel about the pick? Did you like the Andrew Vaughn pick, Josh? I compare Andrew Vaughn to Paul Konerko. I think offensively he's going to be someone in the middle of the lineup for the White Sox that'll hit 30 home runs a year, hit higher than 280, but he is limited to first base. Right, and, and so is that good or bad? Are you, are you fine with that? Because if he hits 280 with 30 home runs every year, and I agree with you, I, I keep saying if there's a guy in this draft who's going to hit 300 with 30 home runs on a yearly basis, mm-hmm. it's Andrew Vaughn. And I think that's fine. I mean, do you wish he could play third? Do you, you know, you know and he, I know he took round balls there, and I don't know if the White Sox are going to pursue that at all. But, you know, it is funny because, again, I don't know why I, I, I get – I wouldn't say I was enraged by the reaction to Andrew Vaughn on Twitter, but a lot of, oh, he's short, oh, he's only right-handed, oh, the only I think college right-handed hitting first baseman who's ever gone in the top five was David McCarty, and he was terrible, and this and that. And it's like, <laughs> like well, okay, so based on a sample size of one, Andrew Vaughn is destined to not be good because David McCarty wasn't a good big leaguer. I just... Like, you know, I'm not saying he's going to be this good, but I can think of another short, right-right first baseman named Jeff Bagwell, who wound up being pretty good. And and I'm not saying that Andrew Vaughn's mm-hmm. going to run like Jeff Bagwell, but, you know, he can hit like – he has a chance to hit like Jeff Bagwell. So I, I like the pick when it came down to it. I thought, you know, they didn't overthink it. They didn't try to get cute and, oh, let's save a couple, you know, a million and a half or whatever and and do something else. I thought they took the best player, which I thought was the wise move. And with Vaughn, if he enters the system and he hits this year in Kannapolis and Winston-Salem and he goes to Birmingham next year and he rakes there, then I think White Sox fans will feel a lot better. They just feel a little burned out right now watching Zach Collins and watching Gavin Sheets, even though Gavin Sheets is having a good week, uh, that they're burned out a little bit where they were told that these hit, that these were good college. Wait a minute. Josh, you're saying that White Sox fans don't like a first baseman who slugs 372 in double a, well, why, why is that? (laughs) It's a little concerning. Uh, Hey, he's got four home runs this week, uh, which that's encouraging, discouraging, still slugging 372. But regardless, I, I think that's where White Sox fans are just a little burnt out. But, and I mentioned this on SoxMachine.com in my draft profile, Andrew Vaughn, he is a much better college track record and college hitter than Zach Collins and Jake Berger were. So that's why I'm optimistic. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it's not even – I mean, look – you know, you know, I love all my Missouri State guys. I love that program, and I was on board with the Jake Berger pick. I mean, was that Collins? I always feel like every time he comes up on your show, I feel like I'm being mean. I've just never thought he was really going to be a big league catcher on a regular basis, so I wasn't assigned him. But you're right, and again, I'm not. I'm not saying he's going to be as good as this guy, but I remember the first draft I covered for Baseball America. <laughs> the White Sox took a, a right-handed hitting college first baseman. Now, granted, he, he, he certainly wasn't short. Um, and everybody was like, what are they doing? Frank Thomas, that guy's a DH only. What a terrible pick. You can't do that. And Frank Thomas wound up being pretty good. And so, again, I guess now <laughs> I've, compared, I've, I've, I've brought up Andrew Vaughn in comparison with Jeff Bagwell and Frank Thomas, who I think shared the same birthday, right? If I remember that correctly, that was like an oddity. They do. But uh, yes. uh, like, so I'm not I'm not putting Andrew Vaughn in the Hall of Fame, but like this guy's bat, it, it, it's the best bat in the draft. So like, I, I don't think you could ever 
Well, you, I guess you can. I don't think anybody should ever complain. If your team gets the best bat in the draft, you should not complain about that. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, you wish you could play third or left field or something. That's fine. But, like, you I, you know, I like the Paul Konerko type of production. I think he can be exactly that guy. And if he does that, that's good. I mean, then you've got first base taken care of for a long, long time. So I, I really did like that pick. Now, MLB Pipeline, you guys had Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist in the top 70 on the draft board. So maybe you could say that the White Sox reached a bit for Thompson the second round. But it sounds like from Nick Hosteller and his quotes after the draft that they were surprised in the draft room that Dahlquist was still available after the second round and that influenced their decision-making to select him in the third round, even though the rumors are that he's having an asking price to forego his college commitment for $2 million. Last time you were on this show, Jim, we discussed that the White Sox needed pitching help and we talked a lot about college starters. Are you surprised that they decided to go the route of prep arms to address this area? Yes and no. Based on their recent track record, if you told me they were going to take an arm in the second round, and I think I told you before the draft, that while this was like probably the worst group of first-round college pitchers I'd seen in 30 years, there were plenty of guys I liked in the second round. So I might have thought that they would have gone college in round Two, if that makes sense. I'm just trying to look at this real quick. Like they picked at 45. I mean, you could have had um, Matt Cantorino. You could have had. I guess a lot of the college arms did get pushed up a little bit. I'm looking, just looking at call. You know, Kyron Paris, Brandon Williamson, John, John Daxakis was a guy I liked a lot. Um, you know, so there were guys you could have you could have taken in the second round. You know, college wise. So that part surprised me. I'm not necessarily surprised in the third round. Because one thing I, I, I always do say, high school arms always go lower than they're supposed to because of demographic risk. Teams are not afraid to pay them. They just would rather pay them with a lower pick. So if you told me that they went college arm in the second round and then came back and got a good value on a high school arm in the third round, I wouldn't have been surprised. Now, all that said, Thompson's an interesting guy who last summer, if you watched him, you probably would have said, well, that guy's not going to get to 45. Um, and he was kind of inconsistent this mm-hmm. spring. You know, he was on the same team with J.J. Goss, who went in the first round to the Rays, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, he just didn't have a great spring. And I, and I think because he didn't have a great spring and he was so good during the summer, his stock dipped a little bit. And all that said, you know, I mean, you're still talking about athletic, six foot three, a right-hander who's got room to put on weight. He's got a really quick arm. He's hit 95, 96 miles an hour. There are times where he's 89, 90 this year. Um, he could have a, a plus curve at times. Again, that was inconsistent this year. <clears throat> but all that said, like I don't think that Matthew Thompson would have been there at 81. So it's kind of one of those things, you know, you, you can't really trade. You could trade, I guess, competitive balance picks. But other than that, you can't trade draft picks. So like if you like Matthew Thompson, and my guess is obviously they liked him a lot, then you know, like, hey, we kind of have to take him here because he's probably not going to get to 81. So um, I think that's just a case. Where, and you know what? And I will applaud a team that has conviction about the guys they liked. And, you know, I don't think that we necessarily thought they were taking a high school guy in round two, but they liked the guy and they took him. And I think Dahlquist, like you kind of pointed out, fell a little bit because of asking price. And, you know, but you're talking about a guy who, who's another high upside 
you know, he's not quite as big as Thompson, but he but he still has room to put on weight. Um, you know, his fastball jump from the upper 80s to 91, 95. He gets good extension. He's good depth on the curveball. So, I mean, he, he's really highly regarded, too. I mean, Andrew Dahlquist, no question, was a second-round talent. In fact, I, I think we had him rated even slightly ahead of Matthew Thompson uh, on our final list. Now, for James Beard, their fourth-round pick, he was clocked with a 60-yard dash of 6.21? At an MLB event. That's not That's not a – not to cast aspersions, but it's not at a showcase run by people who make money off of showcases. Um, that was at an actual MLB event. So, yes, 6.21 seconds. Okay, so two questions about that. One, how did – no SEC school give him like a track and field scholarship if he's running that fast. Uh, but two, is that the fastest reading you've read from a prospect? Yeah, for this year, um, I'm, I mean, maybe there's somebody faster past. I mean, he's a Mississippi high school kid, so he gets compared to Billy Hamilton because of that. Um, yeah, he was only a JUCO recruit, so I don't know if there was you know like a great issue, but he wasn't committed to a four year school. Um, for baseball or track, but yeah, I thought he was the fastest player in the draft. And what I like about him, and I, I may have said, if, if I haven't said this on your show, I know I've said it a million times elsewhere. My least favorite profile of any prospect is the speed guy who can't do anything else because I just don't think those guys play well in the big leagues because they can't hit and they don't ever wind up walking because if it's a 3-1 count, people are just like, oh, I'll just put the fastball over the middle. All you're going to do is hit a single. But what I like about Beard is. He's not that that speed only guy. Like, you know, he you know he's he's somewhat raw and he's going to need time to refine himself. But I mean, he's got like some bat speed. He's got some strength in his hands. He shows the ability to backspin the ball. I, I think this is a guy who could hit ten or fifteen home runs a year. And you're going to have to respect him a little bit at the plate. You know, he he's not just going to be you know put the ball on the ground and and run. I mean, you know, Billy Hamilton, who I mentioned earlier. You know, he, I mean, as a whole, like, winds up being a useful big league player, but, like, it's all speed and defense. Like, when you look at the, you know, what he brings to the table with his bat, it, it's a negative because he just doesn't impact the ball at all. Um, so, anyway, I, James Beard is, is pretty intriguing, and he was a guy who, you know, I felt like was kind of going in that third to sixth round range, so I, I wasn't surprised where he went. Now about the strategy. After James Beard, from rounds 5 through 10, the White Sox took college seniors in what I assume, Jim, is a ploy to get them to sign for $10,000 signing bonuses so they can go over slot in round 3 to pay for Dahlquist. They're not the only team that did this. The Mets drafted 9 straight college seniors, and the Marlins drafted 7 college seniors in their first 10 rounds. Do you foresee this being an idea that catches on where teams are going to front load their draft with four good prospects that will eat up more than, let's say, 80% of their draft pool and then mix it with college seniors who have no leverage for the rest of the first 10 rounds? Yeah, I don't think this is new. I mean, the bonus full system came in in 2012, and that first year, the, the, the Blue Jays, I think, took college seniors in rounds four through ten. Um, you know, they, they took Anthony Alford, who was a football player in the third round, and some other guys ahead of him. There was one year where the Mariners, and it didn't work out, took, I believe it was Alex Jackson and Gareth Morgan with their first two picks and paid them both well over slot and were pretty much done in the first ten rounds after that. They went pretty much all cheap after that. So I don't think it's new. 
Um, I think it just depends on, you know, your teams, you know, the big part of this is figuring out exactly what it's going to cost to sign guys. And, you know, by doing kind of my math in my head here, I think the White Sox are going to save about $1.3 million if they sign, you know, all those seniors in rounds 5 through 10. Um, so if Dahlquist, what would you say you thought Dahlquist's asking price was? $2 million. Yeah, so that would probably get you right there, and you might have a little bit left over. But, yeah, I mean, it's – I think that you're – I mean, I don't think this is new. And I know there are some teams who prefer to play it kind of somewhat straight up, not necessarily take no seniors, but they like to be able to take a six-round talent in the sixth round. Um, you know, I'll tell you what I would love to see baseball do. Not that it, I guess it's that big a deal. You know, the, everybody you know has pretty much the same bonus pool in rounds four through ten. I mean, teams that pick at the top of each round have a little bit more, but like nobody has any extra picks in those rounds. I don't understand why they don't just give everybody in rounds four through ten, you know, sum up the money, and everybody gets that same amount. Like I'm, I'm like for the White Sox, it would be one point two, one point be like about one point nine million for the White Sox. Let, let's just round it out. Let's give every team two million dollars in rounds four through ten. But what I would do. Because it's not horrible, but like it's weird that you see some better players drafted in rounds 11 through 13 than you do in rounds 8 through 10. Is you know you don't get compensation for those picks. If I don't sign my fourth rounder, I don't get my pick. I don't get that pick back the next year like I do in the top three rounds. I would just give every team two million dollars for rounds four through ten. You know for, for bonus pool calculations. But if you don't sign the guy, you don't lose the money. So like if I don't sign my seventh rounder, the White Sox it's two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. They wouldn't lose that out of their pool. Um, you know, you're not spending money twice because you aren't getting the pick back next year. And just keep it simpler. And then, you know, maybe you take, you know, eight, you know, ten guys in the first ten rounds and figure you're going to sign eight. I, I just think that would be a cleaner way to do it. I like that idea. You should send that up the chain. I, well, I don't think it's going to get anywhere. But yeah, I, I've been saying that for years. <laughs> I think it's a good idea because it's just. You know, I understand, like in the first three rounds where you get the compensation pick, you can't have something like. Hey, like if the White Sox don't sign Matt Thompson, they can spend his one point six five million dollars elsewhere, and then they get the pick back next year because then you'd be double dipped. But I understand that. But rounds four through ten, why do I lose the money out of my pool when I don't get the pick back? Well, let's just simplify things instead of like I just don't love like I, I'm not saying the strategy. I understand what the White Sox did. Their strategy makes sense. I just don't like rounds eight through ten being like a majority of four year seniors, uh, four year college seniors who you know, otherwise are probably going in the twentieth round. But that's just me. Now, after the 10th round, the White Sox took two prep players from Puerto Rico, catcher Victor Torres, who has posted good uh, diamond kinetics numbers, which is what Perfect Game uses. It's similar to TrackMan. And uh, Maciel Gonzalez Acosta is a center fielder. Uh, Any reports on these two prospects? (laughs) I've got nothing for you on them because Jonathan does Puerto Rico, and they weren't on our radar as much, so... (laughs) I, I I could I could basically Google them, which I'm sure you have done, and yes. probably come up with the same information. So I, I've got nothing on them, unfortunately. Okay, uh, and then <laughs> looking at the draft as a whole again, which team do you think did the best job in the 2019 Major League Baseball draft? Well, that's this year. There's an easy answer to that, and the teams that always look the best are teams with extra picks. And this year, the Diamondbacks had seven of the first 75 picks. And if they don't look like they had the best draft, then something would be amiss. But I, I, I thought they did a real nice job. I mean, they had four first-round picks. They got Corbin Carroll, who, who's an athletic center field type, who was being talked about in the top ten. They got 
you know, one of the best high school arms in the draft in Brennan Malone. They got one of the most projectable high school arms in the draft in Blake Walston. Dre Jamison from Ball State, who we may have talked to him before draft. I said, well, that was my – I don't know if I mentioned him. That was maybe my my guess as to who the White Sox would take at 45 throwing a dart. Um, You know, it was a guy who was up to 98, not sitting there, but up to 98 pretty much every time out for Ball State this spring. And, you know, and then they had a lot of depth behind those guys. But I thought the Diamondbacks – Far and away had the best draft, and again, if they didn't, then there'd be a prop. And again, the perfect game national showcase is next week down at Chase Field, and then July at Wrigley Field is the Under Armour National Showcase. I will be there to see some of the top prep players for the 2020 Major League Baseball draft. And of course, there's Team USA games this summer and Cape Cod during the summer to track. Uh, with all this being said. With the 2019 Major League Baseball draft already uh, completed, and those prospects will be added to, I assume, top 30 prospect list for all the teams, uh, when should we yep. see a new top 100 prospect list for MLB Pipeline? Okay, well, we should. I don't want to be held to this. <laughs> I don't have a specific date, <laughs> but we, we try every six weeks to update the top 100 list where we revote on the top 15, and then we... We we don't tinker with it beyond that, like just here and there, like like to move guys up a spot or two. But basically, guys who need to move up or down ten spots will make those adjustments. Now we did one of those in early May. We have one, I guess, that should be due in the next week or two. We're all recovering from the draft, so I'm not sure if that'll be a next week project or not. But like there will be some tinkering ahead, and then they would be kind of what we call the revamp will be usually comes out like a week or so in advance of the top uh, I mean it's in advance of the trade deadline like we wait for the we won't add the draft guys like Andrew Vaughn could sign right now and we will not add Andrew Vaughn to the White Sox list until we do the revamp after following the signing deadline if that makes sense I mean so mm-hmm. I'd say you know about a week or so before the trade deadline we will have a new um, White Sox top 30 where we can move guys around at will um, and I'm sure we will do that um, you know we can pull guys off add guys on you know that type of thing so I, I guess your next question probably I'm going to anticipate it here Josh is where should we expect Andrew Vaughn to, to rank am I am I correct why would I ask you <laughs> that I'm kidding yes where do you where do you think Andrew Vaughn fits personally like and and in, in, in you can have, you know, there are arguments, oh, this guy's proven it, and, this, you know, Andrew Vaughn hasn't done anything yet. I'll tell you, I would be inclined to put Andrew Vaughn number two behind Luis Robert because Kopech is out until next year with Tommy John surgery. I could see an argument for putting Andrew Vaughn fourth behind Dylan Cease. Like, it just, it's, I have to figure that one out in my head. You know, it's, it's hitter, pitcher, you know, two guys who've been to AAA and Kopech's case to the majors, albeit he's hurt now, you know, versus a guy who's yet to get going. But uh, my, my gut tells me I should put him at two. Uh, you know, he, he will definitely rank no lower than four. And then finally, Nick Madrigal, he got promoted to Birmingham. Is there anything that you need to see for Madrigal at AA? to give you more confidence as far as with his rise towards the major leagues? Well, 
I mean, we talked about him a lot, and I think the last time we did, I told you, he's he's a little bit hard for me to figure out exactly what he's going to be, and it was hard for me to figure out before the draft last year, because I, I, I do think the guy was the best player in college baseball for two years running, um, you know, but he's he's tiny. Um, I have no doubt he's going to play in the big leagues. I have no doubt he's going to be an everyday second baseman. I have no doubt he's going to hit for average and play really good defense at second. I think the, the, the question just is, is how much impact is he going to have at the plate? Like, like I, I don't see any way he doesn't hit 280 at least. Like, like I mean, he's just he's too good at putting the bat on the ball. He, you know, and he's even done that in pro ball. Like, I haven't calculated his career strikeout rate in the minors, but it's something like close to 400 plate appearances, and I think he's struck out 11 times. Does that sound right? It, it's crazy. That's what, 3%. It's not even 3%. So, like, th- this guy's going to hit for average. I, I just don't know how much power there's going to be. I mean, if he hits 280 and he gets on base at a 340 clip and he slugs about 360, which is kind of what he's, you know, on track to do based on what he's done the minors so far, that's a 700 ops. Like, that's not blowing you away. And, you know, I, I do think he could hit more than that. Uh, you know, I, I, I think – I just don't know, Josh. It, it's so – tough to figure on him exactly how much impact there's going to be like but he's so good he's got to be the best contact hitter in the minor leagues i mean the guy struck out less than three percent of his pro appearances and it's not like they haven't pushed him aggressively because they have but he hasn't walked a ton because he puts the bat on the ball so easily and he's got you know what 21 extra base hits in 93 games and 17 of them are doubles so i mean he's like a career 369 slugging percentage right now well, we'll see how Magical does in Birmingham. We'll see where Andrew Vaughn falls in the top 30. Where would you put him? So, Luis Robert is number one. Yeah, that's that's a given. Oh, Cease and Kopech. All right, Kopech two, Cease three. Okay, I, I would put Vaughn four in front of Magical. Okay. And then six, don't ask me. I need someone to step up their game. I almost want to say Jimmy Lambert, but I, I just don't want to go that far yet. But, well, there's Dane Dunning. I guess I would put Dane Dunning at six, and then I have no idea who to put at number seven. Maybe Luis Wasabe if he uh, hopefully recovers from his hand injury. Yeah, no, it's it, it's tough. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought it through that far, but you're right. Like I'm, I'm looking at my current list, and it's not like there's a lot of guys who are like, oh, that guy's having a good year. Like, most guys are like, eh, this guy's having a little bit of a disappointing year. Yeah, I, that would be a good question. Even Dunning, like, I, I really like Dane, but he's not a, a huge stuff guy. Um, you know, he's more you know, more of, like, solid stuff, solid feel. And he's out, you know, probably going to, you know, not even be back at full strength until midway through next year. Like, you'd kind of like somebody to supplant him. I, you know, it's we'll see. Like, I'm going to have to put these high school pitchers somewhere, but – you got all these corner outfielders. It's it's boy, you're making me now. I'm thinking, boy, this could be a tough top thirty to figure out. And, <laughs> it will be in, in about six weeks. I can't even figure out a top ten, and I cover this team daily, Jim. <laughs> so I wish you. No, I agree. Like if you were, if you like, because you, if you give Dunning the benefit of the doubt, and he's number six, you're right. I mean, like, so, so who is your number seven right now? I, I've always liked Basabi, and I guess he'd still be number seven because he's kind of been hurt I, i'm not going to hold his performance against him but i'm looking at my list like coming into the year adolfo you know got hurt blake rutherford's not hitting mm-hmm. uh not you know Luis gonzalez not hitting um zach collins no no i'm sorry steel walker not hitting in high class a after hitting 370 in low a zach collins kind of 
doing what Zach Collins does every year. And plus, I'll tell you what's difficult with the AAA guys. The ball is a joke. Like, oh, I know. Like, the offensive AAA is up, like, you know, like 30 or 40% compared to the rest of baseball. So you have to take all those numbers with a grain of salt. Jake Berger's not back yet. Ian Hamilton is, you know, not was not doing well, and he's on the DL. Like, so, I don't know. You know, Alec Hansen's pitching well as a reliever. Um, and not as well in Double A as he was in Low A, uh, High A. You know, Zach Birdie's got a seven ERA. What, what are we going to do, Josh? Like, I'm I'm still looking for the first guy in here. Like, you might be right. Like, I'm not going to put him at number seven. I knew you were being facetious, but like, nah. Jimmy Lambert's got a four and a half ERA. I, I don't know who the first guy on my list is. Who you would say? Oh, that that guy is clearly exceeding expectations this year. How about I get back to you on this the day after you post your top 30? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is glad. crazy. I'm down to 25 on my list, 26. I, you know, I like like the the only guy who you, and I don't know if he's exceeding expectations, but like one of the few guys you'd say, oh, statistically, that guy's kind of having the year we we hoped or thought he could have, would be Bernardo Flores, who's number 28 on my list. Yeah, and he's on the DL right now too. So. Maybe we'll just have a gap between six and, like, ten or something. But you're right. I mean, I don't know who number seven is right now. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. But I look forward to that coverage. And you can follow Jim on Twitter. He's at Jim Callis MLB. Read his excellent work on MLBPipeline.com. Are you calling the Under Armour National Showcase game again? I believe so. Um, I, it's, I assume it's on TV again. Um, I don't know if that's 100%. 100% yet um i haven't been told i'm doing the game i mean i will be doing the game because it's easy to get me there because i live in chicago i can just drive right in um so it, it right. i could be like the worst announcer. well i should say mlb network has standards i was going to say i could be mediocre and i'd still probably have a decent chance to land that gig but um yeah and i think it's on a monday this year is my understanding um Monday at two o'clock. Um, you know, and I'm not sure when that will air. If it'll air live, if it airs, but yeah, I, I, I theoretically should. And you know, one other event that's new this year, that again I don't have details on, but the day before the Futures Game, so the Saturday of, of All Star Weekend leading into the All Star Game, <clears throat> my understanding is that the prospect development pipeline program that MLB is doing, kind of their own set of showcases, that they're going to have a, a high school version of the Futures game in Cleveland on that Saturday. Um, I, I hmm. believe the game is at one thirty. I think. Um, but I'm not even sure if it's on TV. I think it's on TV. Like, again, I'm, I'm still awaiting word. Um, but that should be kind of a cool event, too, that people should check, especially if you're a White Sox fan wondering about guys uh, who are going to be picked next year. Obviously, um, keep an eye on that. Yes. So when we get those dates knocked out and Jim's doing those games, you'll definitely want to watch as far as his work on MLB Network. They also have a podcast as well at MLB Pipeline. Definitely suggest you listen to that show as well. And Jim, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, no, I always enjoy it, Josh. Although now you've, you've, you've got me like sitting here just I have, I'm, <laughs> I'm pondering the White Sox number seven prospect, and I just have, I have no idea who that, who that is right now. Well, I wish you the best of luck, and if I come up with any ideas, I'll shoot you an email to help you out. There you go. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Okay, take care, Josh. Welcome to the Meyer League Report, which is rather waterlogged this week. 
Every full-season White Sox affiliate was affected by wet weather over the southeast, including the Winston-Salem Dash, who were rained out of an entire weekend against Myrtle Beach. Dylan Cease probably wishes the Knights were rained out, as he lasted only two-thirds of an inning on Sunday, as Josh and I talked about. The Knights were able to salvage two of the three games with a doubleheader, and Zach Collins reached base twice in both. He's batting 346 over eight games in June, which is a strong response after a down May that included a stint on the injured list due to a concussion. On the other hand, Daniel Polka's numbers have plummeted. He's just 10 for 70 with 21 strikeouts over his last 18 games, which has sent his OPS crashing from 1100 to the mid-800s. Birmingham's offense is starting to meet its potential, partially because Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal are at the top of the order, and partially because Gavin Sheets looks like a middle-of-the-order hitter. Robert had a strikeout binge around a couple of rainouts, but came back with his fourth homer on Sunday, while Madrigal has eight hits over his first three games at AA. Sheets is starting to break away from the other season-long Barons after hitting 343 during his first nine games in June. He hit his seventh homer of the season on Thursday, eclipsing his season total with Winston-Salem last year. He's hit only three doubles in 57 games, which is a little weird, but takes signs of sustained life wherever you can get them. The pitching side is lacking in name-brand performance, although Jimmy Lambert made the Southern League All-Star team on the strength of his 70 strikeouts over 59 innings. Zach Birdie had a nice week, pitching three scoreless innings and recording two saves after four straight ugly outings to close out his May. Winston-Salem Dash are sitting on a five-game winning streak after getting rained out in three straight. With Madrigal in Birmingham and Steel Walker still finding his way, the Dash's marketing folks are probably waiting patiently for Andrew Vaughn. Kannapolis got Bryce Bush back this week, but he's still trying to recapture his form before his trip to the injured list. He's 1-for-15 with two walks and nine strikeouts over his first four games back, but at least the one hit was a homer. Until Bush gets back up to speed, Lennon Sosa is the 19-year-old most worth watching. He hit his third homer on Sunday, giving him 25 extra base hits on the season and 20 over his last 36 games. While the Intimidators lost Connor Pilkington and Caden McClure to promotions, Davis Martin is starting to put it together. After giving up 10 runs over two innings on May 21st, the 14th rounder out of Texas Tech has thrown three straight quality starts, striking out 22 over 18 innings. And the DSL White Sox are underway. Without a whole lot of name brand signings and with few in-person reports, you kind of had to square up performances against age and see if anybody is standing out. That said, I posted a season preview for them on SoxMachine.com highlighting some key players acquired over the last two signing periods, and over their first seven games, Wilbur Sanchez, Anthony Espinosa, and Benjamin Bailey are the hottest out of the gate. That'll do it for the Minor League Report. Now we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> Okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to at Sox Machine, liking our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the site and the show at patreon.com slash socks machine posting your questions 
there. And rejoining me on the podcast is Jim Margulis to answer your guys' questions. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from one of our Patreon supporters, Mo Sox. Mo Sox, thank you so much for your support. And Mo Sox is asking, last week you spoke at some length about Rick Renteria's use of the bunt. I wondered if you could expand just a bit more. Do the White Sox bunt more than other teams or just less successfully strategically? Is the trend away from the bunt continuing across Major League Baseball? And are the White Sox playing sound statistics baseball and employing the bunt? Well, I think the White Sox year to year, or like I would say in a given year, the White Sox are above average, not grossly so. Uh, right now they're third behind Baltimore and, and Cleveland, which is surprising. Uh, usually Terry Francona isn't that big of an advocate of the bunt, but they're doing it this year, uh, at least when it comes to sack bunts. So the White Sox are fourth when it comes to looking at missed bunts or fouled bunts. So they are you know, either, whether they're succeeding or they're not, uh, they are squaring around more than the average American League team. The difference, I think, with the White Sox is that they're always in the top three or atop the league. Uh, there, There is some ebb and flow. Like the Red Sox have already had more sacrifice bunts this year than they had all of last year, uh, eight to seven, uh, which is surprising. Um, you know, they're a team that you, you wouldn't count on them bunting, but they're doing it. So it seems to be, you know, sometimes uh, teams do it more or less based on who they have in their roster. But the White Sox are, you know, and every year that Rentry has been manager, they've been top three. They led the league once. And so I think you can say that uh, when you're looking at it multiple years, uh, the White Sox just, do it more often than they and I think when they do it more often you know it's something to be used sparingly so I think if you're bunting you know among the most of any American League team or or more than any other one you're gonna do it a, a bunch of times that are suboptimal and we've seen them do it strangely like down two, you know, bunting down two in late innings, that's something you don't want to do. Uh, the squeeze bunts were kind of automatic and, and uh, you know, got them in trouble a little bit, you know, and bunting with two strikes. I think that's when you get the reputation of, of just being too in love with it, and I think Renteri has flirted with that in the past, and I think you know, another re- way he doesn't do himself favors is that when a bunt doesn't work out, and like the Ryan Cordell bunt that he bunted at the third baseman and, got, and Tim Anderson's forced out at second, angle uh, bunting with two strikes and fouling it off. He tends to blame the player for not executing when it really is a good, I, I guess, you may, maybe you would spread the blame around and, and say like, hey, it wasn't the great call, it didn't work out. Um, you would like to see a little bit more humility or at least a bit more awareness that he is playing against the odds when it comes to run expectancy with these bunt calls. So that's another reason it's dissatisfying. And, and so I think when it comes to his overall approach, it could use a, a bit of a, uh, dampening down. I, I do think when it comes to bunting across the league, there is a bit of noise, or at least a bit more, uh, a bit more situations that call for it. Just with extreme shifting and such, you are seeing more bunting from left-handed hitters just trying to get on base, uh, jabbing at the ball and such, trying to get on the grass uh, between the third base line and the pitcher's mound. So that adds some noise to it. But I think when it comes to pure bunting, station to station, moving guys uh, from first to second, getting a 90 feet at the expense of an out, the White Sox do do it more often than usual and more than they should. Mo Sox, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from John Carney on Twitter, and John is asking, there is a, de- there is a decent chance in the not-so-distant future that the entire rotation will have... Or had Tommy John surgery. Lucas Giolito had it. Michael Kopech is going through it now. Carlos Rodon's going through it now. Dylan Cease has had it. Dane Dunning is going through it now. 
with Ronaldo Lopez still in the mix. I can't decide. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I would say it's more bad than good um, just because of a couple things. One, the you know if a pitcher tears his UCL again, it's way harder to come back from the second one. You know, if, if it happens the first time, it sucks that he loses a year, but there's usually a pretty good recovery rate, and so you can feel good about penciling that starter in after a year and a half and, and getting him back to full strength, mainly within two years. Uh, so there's that. There's also, you know, Zach Birdie kind of looming, looming over everything as a guy who underwent Tommy John surgery, came back and still isn't back to his, his uh, full strength. And when with Michael Kopech coming back, I think he'll be a better test case. Dean Dunning, too. You know, between those two pitchers, have a better idea whether the White Sox have a a good recovery plan in store for getting a full rotation even after Tommy John surgery. I think the one way to spin it and, and, and look at it, I guess, positively or at least take uh, uh, some silver lining from it is that uh, you know, should like a guy like Dylan Cease, he's already had it. So if he comes up the rotation and uh, you, you don't feel that, I guess, sense of, well, his elbow is expected to go once, you know, th- I think that's with Kopech. He didn't have Tommy John, John surgery. So it was always in the back of your mind, like, well, his elbow could snap. He might need it. And uh, hope it doesn't happen. Crap, we lost here when you could really use him. Uh, and, and that kind of sets you back and is a bit frustrating just because you knew it was going to happen, waiting for the shoe to drop, and it does. In the case of Cease, you know, you don't have to worry about that shoe. <laughs> I guess the bigger question is if it, he te- tears his UCL again. But I think it is a different mindset that if you tear his if he tears his UCL again, you at least have a sense that, okay, we can't count on him coming back at full strength. You have to move on. You have to, or at least find another pitcher to replace him and hope for the best with Cease when he comes back. Uh, but it is a bit easier to, I guess, mentally account for after the second one versus the first when uh, you're holding out hope that it doesn't happen and it does. But overall, I think you'd rather not have a guy have his elbow opened up and uh, uh, I guess you know, it, it's not terrible it's not something to dread but i think there is the case where if you have all these guys who might eventually have to have a second tommy john surgery that could not be great <laughs> could not be great if it happens in like 2020 21 22 but hopefully you know, these repairs have some shelf life and won't have to be addressed for another several years if at all well john thank you so much for your question our next question comes from tom gronkowski and tom is asking and this is more of a scenario. Uh, today in the top of the ninth inning, the White Sox had bases loaded with one out. Three total pitches were seen before the third out. No runs scored. The White Sox seem abnormally bad at making good at bats, in parentheses, seeing pitches. When the pressure is on the other team, how much of this is coaching? Well, I think I would start with how much of this is, I guess, recency bias or you know the team you watch versus the other teams. Right now, the White Sox are middle of the pack in those situations, like runners on second and third, bases loaded. Um, they're, they were better. They're, they're in a slump recently. I looked it up just the sample the last few weeks, and they're 6 for 34 in those situations over the last three weeks or so with bases loaded or runners on second and third. And it seems to me like, you know, as, as, as Tom mentioned, seeing pitches, it seems like they want to try to pounce on a pitcher that needs to get in the strike zone 
but they are setting themselves up to be vulnerable with like first pitch sliders. I think we're seeing a lot of rolling over, uh, a lot of uh, you know popping up, trying to wait back and and dropping the bad head and popping up to the right side. I think we're seeing you know those two outcomes more often than you would like, and that isn't so. And that's recency bias, I suppose, if you try to think it's been a full season thing. But it is something you've been seeing, and I imagine that's something that's coaching. Some of that's young players who are trying to, like, say, Eloy Jimenez, he, you know, he popped up a pitch, and, you know, somebody like him trying to get the jump on a pitcher and trying to add some RBIs to his count and prove himself as a, as a run producer. And part of it's like a guy like Tim Anderson, always aggressive, having that aggressiveness turned on him. So I think it is, you know, partially coaching, and maybe that, you know, uh, Todd Steverson or Greg Sparks can try to, I guess, stress that message, you know, after seeing that happen time and time again over the course of a two or three weeks. But, you know, part of it is on the players to, um, you know, try to harness their instincts and understand the situation better. And I, I think that's something that can run hot and cold. I know Avi Garcia last year, basically every first pitch slider, every first pitch was a, uh, and with runners in scoring position, he was swinging at, and it turned out to be a first pitch slider out of the zone. He'd either tap it foul or, or nub it or swing over it and put himself in a bad count. So I think, you know, it is something that uh, teams are aware of based on the White Sox not being a great walking team, but uh, hopefully it's something they get out of just uh, with a bit more patience, a bit more coaching and realizing like, oh, this is a bad habit we've fallen into. Tom, thank you so much for your question and great questions from everybody this week for P.O. Sox. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions. And if you have a question for a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast or a topic that you would like us to tackle. Again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine and help support the show and site at patreon.com slash Sox Machine where our supporters get additional P.O. Sox questions that we answer just for them. They also get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests like Jim Callis this week about the Major League Baseball draft in which they only get to hear those answers and their episodes are ad-free. So if you like more content from SoxMachine.com, like Jim's writing a month in the box uh, as well that you can get on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash SoxMachine to sign up today to receive those benefits. Also, uh, before we end the show, also put out the sh- uh, put out the note that we are uh, having reg- registration is open for the Sox Machine in the Suburbs event, uh, July twenty first. You watch White Sox raise with us at Alter Brewing. At uh, it runs from noon to four. Uh, we picked that date because White Sox raise game always start on time and in, in the dome. So hopefully, you know, we'll start right at noon with the game, and then hopefully afterwards have a live PO Sox afterwards so uh july 21st altar brewing in downers grove if you go to socksmachine.com there's a uh, sign up bar underneath the uh underneath the latest stories and uh, you can follow that link and sign up and we'd love to see you there yes i will be there jim better be there the white Sox and rays game better play now that jim said that they always start on time watch the roof collapses in some freak accident. Oh, also, that's uh, it's induction date, so we'll, hopefully I'll be able to, to uh, steer away from it for a bit to watch Harold Baines' speech. Oh, is it induction day? Yeah. I did not know that. So awesome. So if you are in the Chicago area... Wear your Harold Baines jerseys. Yeah. We can watch Harold Baines be inducted into the Hall of Fame, hopefully watch the White Sox play a competitive game against the Rays all together at Ultra Brewery in Downers Grove 
Uh, it's going to be a very fun time. It always is when we have these types of meetups uh, with Sox Machine supporters and other White Sox fans. So it'd be great to see everyone again. Again, that is on July 21st. And make sure that you register because space is limited at SoxMachine.com. But again, that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe in a number of ways. One is through Apple Podcasts, not iTunes, because iTunes doesn't exist anymore. So Apple Podcasts, but you can also find us in Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.